Well, I draw your attention back to Ephesians this morning. I'm going to be reading and starting uh, with Ephesians 2 this morning. So we'll turn to God's Word. In Ephesians 2, we're going to be reading verse, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them let's go to the Lord in prayer our gracious Lord and heavenly father Lord we bow before you here this morning Lord, we bow before the throne of grace and mercy. Lord, we we thank you for your love. We thank you for your provision. For destitute, poor, needy sinners. Sinners that are dead in trespasses and sins. Lord, we thank you that you made a way where we may be, may be made alive. In Christ Jesus, we may be redeemed. That we might have our trespasses forgiven and forgotten. Lord, we have thankful hearts. And Lord, those thankful hearts want to see others come to know of you. Others that are dead in trespasses and sins be made alive. We pray that the Holy Spirit would quicken the lost, 
give them a glimpse of the Savior as He dies on the cross in our behalf. In our stead, as a substitute for us, may they see Him as He rose again in victory over death and sin. Lord, that we might be raised with Him to newness of life. Feed us from Your Word this morning, Lord. In Your name we pray. Amen. This is a powerful section of Scripture, is it not? Try and take this chunk by chunk through the next few weeks. And we might uh, draw what the Lord would have us to see from it. You know, in this life, uh, as it's been almost throughout all of society and history, there are positions that have prerequisites uh, attached to them. There are uh, almost, almost all positions or occupations have these. Um, especially, this is especially true when we're dealing with something that has a title or responsibility attached um, or, or that's involved with the position that's being sought. Uh, if we looked back through history, for example, uh, to the monarchies or the kingdoms that we see in the past that are ruled by sovereigns or king, kings, there's almost always a condition that's attached to that position. And that condition throughout history has always been a bloodline. You had to be born into a royal family. If you were born into a family of commoners, you had no hope whatsoever of ever being a member of the royalty, of being a king or a queen or a prince or a princess or a duke or a duchess, anything to do with royalty because you were a commoner and you did not meet what was needed to raise yourself to that station. This is true in other areas or occupations as well. A doctor, for instance, let's take a medical doctor. A doctor is a position which can only be attained after certain conditions or prerequisites or qualifications are met. And there are tests that are provided where proficiency in these areas or skills that are needed to do the job are put in place to prove that one is able to perform, has the required skills, obtains the knowledge needed, and has met the standards for that position before obtaining the title of doctor. Many of these things are learning-based, but there are also those which are actually, in some occupations, physical requirements. Uh, in, in certain fields of work, a person must be able to perform tasks with both hands. This is something that is a prerequisite to what I do for a living. You have to have two hands. If you lose a hand, you can't do your job. It's not possible. You may be able to have to lift a certain amount of weight. If you look at some of the the job classifications, FedEx, UPS, Postal, you have to be able to pick up a box that weighs 50 pounds. If you can't do that, you don't have what is required to perform that job. 
one of my daughters was looking into the field of sonography, of ultrasound. And she discovered when we were down meeting with the, the lady that runs this, this department at the school, that one of the prerequisites to this was that there was a test that's required that measures a person's ability to process and manipulate the tools required to perform an ultrasound. And this had to do with, with you had to be able to pr prove a certain level of visual acuity and manual dexterity in doing the, the two things at one time. There are those who don't have the ability to pass this test with a high enough score to even get into the ultrasound program. There are prerequisites. There are standards that you must meet. And we were told that in this particular case, this is nothing that you can even prepare for. This is something that you have or you don't have. I had to take a test for, for my occupation. I had to go before a group called uh, PERF, and I had to have a medical physical exam, and I had to have a psychological exam. Brad knows all about this. Well, I failed one of my tests. I failed the colorblindness test. Thankfully, they had an ADA compliancy test, which allowed me to take that test, that colorblindness test, in another fashion. I'm assuming because of the type of colorblindness that I had. And I was able to pass that. Now, I seriously doubt that I could do Elliot's job. I don't think that they probably have the same type of ADA compliancy for colorblindness for a pilot that they do for a law enforcement officer. Even taking Elliot, for example, his job when he was in the Marine Corps, fighter pilot, correct? Very different than a passenger pilot, even though they're both jets. They're not going to probably let you hop into, right, right from a, a fighter jet, into that passenger plane that carries hundreds of passengers without having to have training and, and meeting a standard or proving competency in his ability to fly those jumbo jets. That's why he's gone to training several times Every time he gets a different certification for a different plane, I'll, I'll call it, because I don't know the technical term for it. But there are things that are prerequisites. There are standards that must be met for different jobs, different occupations. It's a you-must-be-this-tall-to-ride type prerequisite or a standard. Well, there's something very interesting to me <clears throat> that we come face-to-face -face with here in our letter, in the text of this letter to the Ephesians, uh, regarding this, uh, Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we, we've just finished what we have recorded for us as Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, a few weeks ago, we got, we got through Ephesians chapter 1. And I would have us remember that this is, this is a letter that is written. This is not something that in the original we had Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 23. And then Ephesians chapter 2, this was all one letter written without any type of, of verses or chapters that our translators have put in for, for it to be easy for us to go to a section of Scripture and find what we're looking for. 
But Paul here in chapter 1 has been led by the Spirit to write to the saints in Ephesus. He has extolled and praised the blessings given to them as saints by God the Father, who has chosen them in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. We've looked at this. He predestined them to be adopted as sons in Jesus Christ, blessed them in Jesus, the beloved in whom they have been redeemed by his blood through this redemption and Christ's sacrifice. They've obtained this forgiveness of their trespasses according to nothing but the riches of his glorious grace. This grace, Paul goes on to state, has been lavished upon these Christians and upon us. They've been lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, letting us see kind of as it were behind the curtain as to the mystery of God's will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. This mystery of his will when he placed a, a group of people He chose them before the foundation of the world, placed them in Christ for Christ to come and redeem. It is in Christ by his sacrifice, by his atoning death in our place, his substitutionary atonement, by our union with him, that we have become, Paul says, heirs. And in another place he says, joint heirs with Jesus Christ according to the will of the Father, and we have been given even a guarantee of the inheritance that we're to receive by being an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, this guarantee of the Holy Spirit that is given to us even now, sealing that which is to come of our inheritance. All contained within chapter 1. And then we see in the second part of chapter 1, that Paul prays for these saints that they may be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation to see more fully, to, to grow in the knowledge of God, to have a deeper understanding of their hope and a truer view of this glorious, this, this magnificent inheritance that has been given to them. That they might know in a real, a, an experiential a meaningful way. What is the immeasurable greatness, which is what we looked at last time, the immeasurable greatness of God's power to those who believe. That the power which he displayed is the power, this this power and might that he displayed is the power that he displayed in resurrecting Jesus Christ after his death on the cross. He is saying to these saints here in Ephesus, see what you've been given. See what you've been blessed with and what you've been granted, the position that you have in Jesus Christ. And then we come to this part that is just beyond amazing to me. Paul doesn't tell the Ephesians, isn't it amazing that God saw your worth. He doesn't say, isn't it amazing that God saw how great you are? How special you were. 
how much they had attained by their learning or how they wooed God to choose him by to choose them by their greatness by their abilities it's not at all what he says is it he hits them with a truth the truth as to how they were before a righteous and holy God. Before a God who demands perfection. Who says to, to his, his people and to everyone, be holy as I am holy. Because that's what matters. It's not how fallen man sees you. It's not how you see yourself. Or you see yourself in light of other members of the fallen human race. That doesn't matter. It's how you are in the sight of a holy, almighty God who sees you in your inmost being. Who sees you as you truly are. And what does he tell them? See, this is going right on into chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. And you were dead. This is your qualification. This is the sum total of who you are. And it has nothing at all to merit you or place you in any type of good standing. Or to earn or make you more attractive to, pos to the position that God says he has placed those saints in, Ephesus, in. And by extension, all of us who are saved. This is the position that God has placed us in, and we don't have a single solitary qualification for that position. Christian, you did not earn this. You didn't merit this. You didn't place yourself in a way, in the way, of this great salvation. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Some of you may have, or if you are using, or if you've memorized this passage in the King James or the New King James translation, the words in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, and you hath he quickened, I believe is how the New King James says it, or the, the uh, King James, and the New King James, I believe, says, and you hath he made alive, or you he has made alive. If you will notice, if you have one of those translations with you, those words should be in italics. And those italics indicate that something has been supplied by the translators here. Something was added for clarification. The New American Standard, the English Standard Version, the, uh, the Legacy Standard Bible, uh, most of the, the later translations choose to leave these words out. And you may have it in a footnote down at the bottom that some translations have, and you hath he made alive, or and you hath he quickened. This is one of the few places I don't really mind that this is added, uh, though I don't think it's necessary. Uh, what the translators are doing here is when they add the quickened or the made alive phrase is they're seeking to connect the dots for the reader to clarify what is being said. And, and that's why I don't really think it's necessary. It does not in any way, shape or form change the, shape or form change the truth of what is being proclaimed here. This being dead 
in Trespasses and Sins that Paul tells us about here is a call for the reader to look back to what this verse is connected to. Remember once again that this is a letter written to a body of believers in Ephesus. They would have read right through our man-made division of chapter 1, verse 23, into chapter 2, verse 1. What I believe, though, is that this connects the dots, this adding of this phrase, is, is our translator seeking to connect the dots back to chapter 1, verse 19. This is a necessary connection being made. There's an intimate connection between this phrase and you were dead in trespasses and sins and that of verse 19, which says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? There is something that has changed here when he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. And it's pointing back to the power, the might, that is contained in chapter 1, verse 19. This is what Paul is stressing. He's saying, you Christians have been blessed to be a partaker of a gift that displays the immeasurable greatness of his power, the power of Almighty God. In fact, what he points them to after saying this power is toward us who believe, according to the working of his might, is pointing them to the power and might that he worked in Christ when what? When Christ was raised from the dead and then seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This is the, the power displayed. This is the display of his might and, and, and almighty power that when you were dead in trespasses and sins. The same power which quickened or made alive these Christians and by which you, if you are a Christian, have been made alive. Recipients of the same grace recipients of the same gift, recipients of that same display of power and might, it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And in fact, if we skip down just a little bit further, we see what Paul is saying and what he is meaning here and why our translators have chosen in the King James and the New King James to add that, and you hath he quickened and you hath he made alive. We see this when we look down in verse 5 of chapter 2. He states, even when we were dead in our trespass, He, that's God, made us alive together with Christ. Do you see how this all fits together? So although it is unnecessary to have that in verse 1, it seeks to make that connection between what he displays in verse 19 all the way through what he displays in chapter 2, verse 5. That they were dead in trespasses and sin, but something has happened. And this something is the working of his immeasurable greatness of his power. This, 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 this almighty working, this, this great working of power that God has done in changing one from death to life. 
Well, very well then, what type of death is it that Paul says they are dead in? Well, there are three types of death that every member of the fallen race is actually under. All three of these deaths are inherited deaths, so to speak. They're given to us through our connection with what theologians call our federal head. That's That's a fancy term for saying that Adam was our representative, the representative of our whole human race when he was created in the garden. And that representative, Adam, fell in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. There Moses records for us what took place in the garden. We refer to this as original sin. We refer to this as the fall. But there where Adam, our representative, fell from the state that he was in. If you remember, God told Adam that he could eat of every tree in the garden, every single one of them, with the exception of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said that for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It's an emphatic statement. You can eat of anything else, in the garden. Every tree that's good for for food, you can eat of, except this one. Well, you will remember how the serpent came to Eve, and he was a crafty creature. And he deceived Eve. And she took of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she ate. And then what did she do? She gave it to her husband, Adam, and he also ate. And the immediate effect of Adam, taking and eating of the fruit of this particular tree was spiritual death. This is the first type of death. This act, this first sin, this first transgression of God's command ruptured Adam and Eve's relationship with their creator, with God. It immediately expressed itself as shame, as fear, as guilt, and further exhibited itself by the fact that they wouldn't even take personal responsibility for what they had done. God goes to Adam and says, Adam, what have you done? Well, the woman, even blaming God, the woman that you gave me. And then he goes to Eve and says, Eve, what have you done? Well, the serpent that was in the garden not even taking responsibility. Isn't this what we see of our own sin in our life? This spiritual death was a separation from God, an alienation from Him, a changing of the relationship between God and man. This is further shown to us as God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden barring the entrance back into paradise by placing a cherubim and a flaming sword at the entrance so that they would be barred from entering and having access to the tree of life. (coughs) Spiritual death. This spiritual death was then passed down to the children of Adam and Eve. We see their children. Immediately what happens? One of them kills the other. Sin. Spiritual death. And then we see, shortly after in Genesis 6, 
that the whole earth is full of wickedness and sin. In Genesis 6-5, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention... This is a very vast statement. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Dead to God. Spiritual death. The second type of death is physical death. God sentenced man through Adam to physical death. If you remember reading the curse that was placed on the serpent, on Eve, and on Adam. And that is recorded for us by Moses in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam, he says, this is Adam's, the curse upon Adam. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat of it. Till what? Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man has a sentence upon them of physical death. The third type of death that man has after the fall and that they are subject to is eternal death. This is the ultimate manifestation of spiritual death and physical death. This state of death is far worse than physical death. The, this death... This eternal death is the punishment awaiting all those who die in their sin. In their sin apart from the work of Christ being applied, this is the death that awaits every single sinner. All of this, spiritual death, physical death, eternal death, if we die apart from Christ, has been inherited through Adam. Romans 5.12 makes this very clear to us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. In Adam, we all sinned in the garden. As our representative, it's as good as if we were there and did it ourselves. This is what is meant by Paul when he says here in verse 1 of chapter 2 that you were dead in trespasses and sins. He states to them that they are spiritually dead to God with a sentence of physical and eternal death awaiting them in due time to be carried out. And why are they dead? In the original here, I'm led to believe that it is not so much dead in trespasses and sins, 
but more the idea of being dead on account of trespasses and sins. Just as we are talking about here, you were dead. Paul says on account or in light of trespasses and sins. This is inferred upon us by our father Adam, and it's been exhibited by every single member of the human race since Adam. We are all dead in trespasses and sins. This is exactly the same language that Paul uses in his letters to the Colossians. In Colossians 2.13, he says, And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Sounds a lot like what we read here in Ephesians 2, isn't it? Very, very similar. Well, then we proceed to verse 2 here, where we read, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul is again pointing them to what they once were. The, the proof, if you will, of their deadness and their spiritual state apart from Christ. They once walked according to and following the course of this world. Paul is saying, you once walked according to the ruling principles. That's what he means by the course of this world. The ruling principles or the spirit of this world conducting yourself in a sinful state, living in wickedness according to the description of God when he looked down upon mankind that we've already talked about in Genesis 6. Every intention of the heart was evil. This is the course of the world. Look around you. Your own observation will bear witness to the fact that this is true. What is it that causes war? What is it that causes someone to murder? To steal from someone else? To lie to someone? Hatred for someone else. Malice towards someone else. This is man in his spiritual deadness following after the sinfulness exhibited in the course of following after the world. The course of this world, the, the, the ruling principles of the spirit of this world has come to love and relish sin. It's, it's forgotten what we sang a, a song by Horatius Bonner just a few minutes ago. And he once made the statement that the flood of evil that, that has been forgotten, this, the, the, the effects of sin has been forgotten. The flood of evil that has issued forth from a single solitary sin. Look at all the evil that exists from one sin from one rebellious act to a holy and righteous God. Sin has become the governing principle of this world, a world which lives under the principle that a woe is pronounced upon in Isaiah. 
Isaiah 50 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is the course of the world. Everything that is righteous, the world hates. Everything that is unrighteous, the world loves. Look around you and tell me that's not so. This is the course of the world, and Paul is saying to the Ephesians and to us, you once walked in this way. Going on, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, who is this prince of the power of the air? This is Satan. Scripture speaking of him being the ruler of this sinful, fallen world. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is the prince, the power of the air. John 12, 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Speaking of Satan as the ruler of this lost, fallen, dead, sinful world. And later in Ephesians 6, we read about the fact that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And who is the leader of all of that? But that same one that came to Eve in the garden. Subjection to sin is subjection to Satan. It is bondage to sin and bondage to Him who is the master of sin. Jesus tells us in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. And then listen to what He goes on to tell them further on. Few verses later, speaking to the same people, the same members of fallen mankind, those who are spiritually dead, members of the sinful race of mankind, Jesus tells them in John 8 44, You are of the Father, your Father, the devil. And your will, your will, is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of, the, of lies. And, he, and Jesus is telling these people, you are of your father, the devil. This is the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. By sons, Paul is stating that this disobedience is derived from their sinful and willing subjection to this spirit of the world, the way of the world, their father, the devil. 
This spirit of sinfulness, the spirit of mankind that has now manifested itself in willful disobedience to the will of God. Disobedience to doing what God said is good in exchange for doing everything that God says is evil. Calling good evil and evil good. Paul describes this spirit in Titus 3. He says in Titus 3.3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is spiritual death. Being ruled by sin and a sinful heart, sinful desires. Verse 3 goes on. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Paul doesn't shy away from including himself in this group. He is saying we all. This is not a Jew versus Gentile thing. This is not an us versus them thing. This is not a description of the, of, of the, the, the outwardly moral and those who are outwardly immoral. This is an all. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. This is irrespective, irrespective of, of personal character, of, of any national group, of any class or any other type of division you can make of it. We all, born under sin, once walked this way. We once lived this way. We have all conducted ourselves in this manner. The King James translates it as our conversation in times past, the new King James, uh, that we have conducted ourselves. It's all saying the same thing, that we've lived like this. Lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Living according to that which we most desired. In sin, we most desire sinfulness. Dead to God, we love sin. We love that which is sinful, that which is opposed to what God says is holy and right. Our desires themselves. If you ever want to read an amazing book, read The Bondage of the Will or one by another author author that that deals with the same thing, the freedom of the will. See, the will itself has been subjected to sin when one is outside of Christ. The will itself is defective. That's how deeply spiritual death and sin has encroached into our our lives that even our will is opposed to God. Colossians 1.21 describes this in, in this manner. And you who once were alienated and hostile 
in mind, doing evil deeds. We did what we wanted. What we wanted was contrary to what God wants. And Paul says, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Well, whose wrath are we subject to? Whose wrath is this that we're children of? Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's the wrath of God. Colossians 3.5-6 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And there are so many that think of God the Father as being wrathful. And that Jesus Christ is all love, even to those who are sinful and not given to Him. Listen to what Revelation tells us about the Lamb. Revelation 6, 15-17, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free. Covers everybody. Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. And what did they say to these mountains and rocks? Fall. Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So then we are by nature, apart from Christ, subject to the wrath of the Almighty. By nature, what does this mean? Paul is telling us here that we were by birth exposed to this divine wrath. That our very nature is the grounds of our condemnation. We won't go back over it again, but remember what we have already seen from Scripture. That this nature is inherited from our representative, from our head, from Adam. By our very nature, we are objects of God's wrath against sin and the sinner. Hodge puts it this way. Charles Hodge puts it this way. We were born in this condition. It was something natural. You are by nature children of wrath. It was something natural. We did not become the children of wrath but we were already such as we were born. It is by nature, not on account of nature, that we are here declared to be the children of wrath. Men are born in this condition. Men are born in a state of condemnation. It is not that our nature is the ground of that condemnation, In other words, we don't just receive condemnation by what we do. 
We are condemned by what we already are. We are by nature, we were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest of mankind. Well, you see then, based on what Paul tells us, you don't have anything, I don't have anything that would commend me to God. You didn't have one prerequisite to being given the title child of God. Not a single qualification. You and I and all those who have been recipients of God's grace and mercy are no different than anyone else. We didn't have something special in us. We didn't have an island of righteousness, which is a popular phrase, an island of righteousness where we could reach out and lay hold of of Christ. You and I, all of us, were dead in trespasses and sins and living according to that spiritual death. This is of God. This is of His grace. This is of His mercy. You remember when we read this chapter, this part of this chapter, that we can't boast about this. This is a gift. And if it's earned, it's no longer a gift. That's why we must. We were by nature. Think about this. We were by nature children of wrath. That's why we must be born again. Must. If by the first birth we were able, there would be no need for a second birth. And the words of Jesus to the most eminent of theologians in his day, the most learned, the teacher of Israel, his words to Nicodemus would have been of no use when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, your first birth didn't make you eligible. There was something wrong in your first birth. You see, Nicodemus, you inherited something from Adam. You were condemned already. If you are to escape this wrath, something must be done on your account. Something must be done for you. You're dead. You can't do anything. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born again. There must be a new nature given. That old, stony, dead heart must be ripped out. And a living heart must be inserted in its place. You know, this is the folly of the professing church today. They care too much for the dead world. They follow too closely the course of this world. They seek to please and appease those who follow the course of the world and tell everybody, you're fine. 
You're just a little sick. You're just a little diseased. You're okay. There's nothing really wrong with you. Is that what Paul says? Paul says you're dead. You're not sick. You're dead in trespasses and sins. I believe that this is even a problem in what we see so common in society today is depression. Why are people depressed? Why are people so anxious? Why are people just just weighted down with, with not being okay? Their conscience is telling them something's not right. Something's not right in here. And instead of telling them, you're right, something's not right, you're spiritually dead. You're alienated from God, who is the one who can bring you peace, the one who can bring you salvation. We tell them, no, it's okay. You know, you're just going through a rough rough spot, a rough patch. You know, try this or try that. Never dealing with the actual diagnosis of what is wrong in the heart. Giving, trying to give a temporary measure of relief and leaving them open to an eternity of separation from God. Because we won't deal with what is at the heart of the issue that man in their sinful nature is dead to God. They're alienated from him. There is no peace. You're crying peace, peace when there is no peace. You can't give them the cure if you don't diagnose what's wrong. They're dead. Dead to God. Spiritually dead will one day be physically dead. And if something doesn't happen between that point of their birth and their physical death, they're eternally dead. Mankind is in a desperate state. And I don't want to leave you there. Because he goes on. In verse 4 and 5, that we'll look out later. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when his people were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive with Christ. This is the immeasurable greatness of His power. His mighty work of regeneration. Making those who were dead alive. That's what mankind needs. They've got to be born again. You must be born again. Made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. What a blessing. We 
alone, the church of God, the people of God, have a way to point others to the cure for spiritual deadness. There's no other religion in this world who has a cure for what ails us. They'll tell you, just be better. Just be better. Just pull yourself up. How are you going to do that when you're dead? You can't pull yourself up. You can't get up. You're dead. We have to point them to the one who can make them alive. And that's what Ephesians points us to. God the Father made a way that spiritually dead, those dead in trespasses and sins can be made alive. And He placed us in that way. And that way is Christ. Look forward to when we come back together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You. Thank You that though we are born to this world alienated from You, children of wrath just as others, that You are a God who is rich in mercy, a God who by His grace has made provision for poor, dead sinners to be made alive. Help us to remember this. Help us to just, just immerse ourselves in this truth, Lord. What a great grace and mercy has been bestowed upon us in salvation. Lord, be with us this week. Give us opportunity to share of your truth, of your way of salvation with others that we might give to a world that is hurting, a world that has lost the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, bless the word to us. Lord, give us hearts that would meditate upon it throughout the week. In your name we pray. Amen.